So Money episode 912, Andrea Pachter, director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at Indiana University. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. When people give, it's not only about making the world a better place, but we find that it makes us happier too. When we're happier, our mental health is better, and hopefully our financial health is better, and our physical health is better. So it's a good thing for all of us. You heard it here. Giving can lead to happiness. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We're dedicating today's show to the topic of philanthropy, and in particular, the gender differences when it comes to giving. Our guest is Andrea Pachter, who is the managing director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at Indiana University. The institute was created to provide research and giving to help create powerful female philanthropists. A lot of questions on the show today about why are there gender differences when it comes to giving and what are those differences? Some really fascinating data Andrea and her team found around how people give and the results of giving. You know, they say money doesn't buy happiness, but the research says that when we give, it can feel very rewarding and can give us all the happy feels. Andrea has also advice for us around how to actually construct a giving plan. Do you have a giving plan? What's involved? How do you even start? And how can it actually be helpful to us as we decide how to give and how not to give as it may be? Very excited to bring on the show, Andrea Pachter. Andrea Pachter, welcome to So Money. Very excited to be talking with you today, Farnoosh. Thank you for including the conversation about philanthropy in this podcast. I am really excited to cover this topic and so grateful to have you on the show to help steer this conversation as, uh, you know, someone who works passionately and deeply in this space. You're the managing director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute. And just to give listeners an understanding of of what that is, you know, this is an organization that, as it states, exists for the purpose to conduct, curate, and disseminate research that grows women's philanthropy. So let's start there with this concept of women's philanthropy and tell us what we need to know about women and philanthropy in particular. What's going on? What are the trends? Before I talk about the trends today, it's really important for people to understand that this is not a new phenomenon. In this country alone, women have been philanthropic since before we were a republic. Mm -hmm. And a A lot of their stories are lesser known because they're not in the history books. The people who generally write history books over time have been men and they see the story in a different perspective. So I would encourage all of the listeners to think about the communities in which they live and the women who have helped make those communities stronger over time. I mean, here in Indiana, for example, we have an awful lot of libraries that were created at the end of the 19th, early 20th century through a challenge grant. Yes, they had challenge grants back then uh, from Andrew Carnegie, who believed that every community should have a free library. And it was the women 
who raised the challenge match for those libraries. I mean, in those days, seven to $10,000 was a lot of money, and they did it in the tried and true ways that we women know about between trash to treasure sales, bake sales, you know, silent auctions, and all the stuff that we're used to in the special events that we go to today. Well, thank you for giving us that that background. And, and so important, you're right. I mean, to think about how history is often interpreted, it's really important to keep now, you know, to, to be insistent upon really proactively trying to find these stories. And there are many of them. And so maybe a, another pre-question to the bigger question is gender and philanthropy. Um, why look at it differently in, in those perspectives? Uh, what are, what, I mean, maybe this can tee up what you're finding with women and, and philanthropy and, and how it is, um, singular in, in some of these findings compared to how men behave when it comes to philanthropy and giving? Right. That's a great question, Farnoosh, and it really has occupied a lot of our time over the past 10 years here at the Women's Philanthropy Institute. So the key, it's hard to know exactly where to start because I think women have always known that we look at philanthropy through a different lens. But really, as fundraising became professionalized starting in the 1950s, the dominant donor in those days was a straight white man. And a lot of the fundraising practices grew up around that. So for any of the listeners who've been part of any kind of a campaign, whether in higher ed or at a nonprofit, there's that competitive spirit and that's hurry, hurry, hurry. Let's get these gifts in by the end of June. There are the recognition levels, there's the campaign leadership, and a lot of that was developed in response to who the donor was in those days. Well, things changed for women a lot after World War II, and particularly with the women's movement in the late 60s and 70s. And as women in this country have had more access to education and income, they have been able to use their resources for philanthropy. So here at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, where WPI is located, we often say that education and income are key predictors of giving. And then just below that would be religion. But that's another conversation that we can have later if we have time. So as women have had greater access to that and more and more women, either through entrepreneurship or through hard work, have more income and then more wealth, they are more predisposed to use it for philanthropy. And also, would you say that, sorry to interrupt, but I think um, technology has really helped to advance the ability for everybody to be more uh, charitable. So whether that's, you know, looking at the internet, but also platforms where you can give um, and, and then, you know, really democratizing um, the donation process. And I think that's not just something that has helped women, but probably everybody. And overall, the, the, the overall totality of giving has risen because, thanks to that. You are absolutely right. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because I've spent about Oh, the last five or six weeks thinking hard about the intersection of technology, gender and giving as we prepare Mm -hmm. for a symposium on that topic in next spring. So what's really interesting, you're right that we think that technology democratizes philanthropy and certainly provides access for more people to be engaged. 
But there's so many questions that we don't know about the quality of that giving, Mm -hmm. the connection between the donor and the nonprofit um, that might receive those dollars. One thing we do know, though, is that more women than men use social media. I mean, I think that's pretty given. And that some research that we did uh, and released a year or so ago finds that for Giving Tuesday, which is after Cyber Monday, which is after Black Friday, after Thanksgiving, Giving Tuesday, when we analyzed some of the data from that, we found that men and women were both likely to give on Giving Tuesday, and they gave about the same amount, but more women gave and therefore they gave it the percentage ranges from between 63 and 65% of the total dollars raised on giving tuesday wow well i have read a statistic that across all income levels women as a percentage of income give more than men and i always love to reference this data because to me it just supports my thesis that when women make more money, the world becomes a better place because we're inherently really great at giving. And if you put money in our hands, like there's just a higher likelihood that it will be used in, it will be used as an instrument to help, to change, to improve. And so that's just my, perhaps my bias, but I think the data also concludes this in some, in some way. Well, Farnoosh, you, you pretty much just summarized uh, the raison d'etre for the Women's Philanthropy Institute. So thank you. For oh, well, great. <laughs> yeah, thank you so for articulating it so cleanly. Uh, the research that you cited is ours. Oh. And it is that women are more likely to give and give more than men across income levels and also across generations. That's been the foundational study on which so much of the rest of the research is based. And so then you have to say, well, why is that the case? And we spend a lot of time thinking about people's motivations for giving. What we found over time is that men and women have different motivations for giving. Women tend to be more motivated by empathy. And we don't know exactly why, but I think that we can see that throughout history, the cultural the cultural differences in the social norms, women are more likely to be caring and and uh, caring about others and sympathetic and empathetic. It's not that men aren't. Some men, I mean, some men may not be. I don't. I can't speak to that. But women are more likely. Men, some some men, and of course, you know, we're generalizing here. Right, so we're going to offend everybody right now. But yeah, we, we apologize in advance. Yeah. Well, it's it's not apologizing. It's just the research uses really strong samples. And so we're very confident here of the findings. This is not a typical um, call 500 households to find out like a Nielsen rating about what TV shows you're watching. This is rigorous, empirical, academic uh, focused data um, that uses nationally representative sample sets. And it matters because we can be more confident in the findings that when we say women are more empathetic, men tend to give more out of self-interest. Yes, it's a generalization, but more men and women fall within those patterns than don't. You're always going to find outliers and anomalies. And we need more. We, look, we need more men in this world to be empathetic and caring about others. We would solve a lot of problems that way. I agree. Another interesting data point that you found, Andrea, that I think is awesome is that giving makes us 
happy, happier. Tell us what's behind that research. We found that giving makes people happy, as you said, Farnoosh, and that married couples uh, are happier, even with, with their giving, where the, di- where the gender difference is. And I just, I find this so interesting is that single men are happy when they begin to make a gift, when it's when they make a gift, that first gift kind of a thing. But women, single women and married women are happier when they increase the amount of their giving. So these gender differences that are part of the history, the research that we do here at the Women's Philanthropy Institute, they even relate to happiness. And I just get a kick out of that. But mm-hmm. when people give, it should make them feel it should make them feel good. It's not only about making the world a better place, but we find that it makes us happier too. So it's one of the reasons why we encourage more people to get involved in philanthropy because it makes us happier. When when we're happier, our mental our mental health is better, and hopefully our financial health is better and our physical health is better. So it's a good thing for all of us. They say money can't buy happiness, but giving certainly can. <laughs> well, that's what the research shows. It's a win-win, you know, you're I helping someone so. and then you're also uh, feeling good about it at the same time. One of the trends that you found in women's giving, I love this, collaborative giving, giving circles. Can you describe this for me and, and to, to maybe describe where we can engage in this? And, and are there like, you know, are there formal platforms for this where we can do that? Well, giving circles are certainly one of the hot new trends Mm -hmm. going back to the point that you mentioned earlier. And we've seen exponential growth in giving circles. And what they are fundamentally is when a group of people come together, pool their resources and decide together how to allocate those dollars. So one of the reasons that this appeals to women a lot is that women can maximize the impact of their giving. So one of the models, and there are many different models of giving circles. I'm going to share only one here. Um, And the idea is that each woman in the giving circle will contribute $1,000. The goal always is to get 100 women involved so that they can make a gift with big impact of $100,000. So if I were doing this, my $1,000 is, you know, multiplied a tremendous amount and theoretically, then it's going to have a bigger impact on the community that uh, we serve. So the other piece is that generally it's one person, one vote for a giving circle. So you are, it's not only writing the check or making the contribution via credit card. It's about being engaged in the process. Mm -hmm. So we've learned an awful lot about giving circles over time. When you talk about how people can connect with it, There are lots of ways. First of all, research has found that there are giving circles in every state. And again, they have different names. But if one lived in Utah or Wyoming or New York City, one could, you know, go into a search engine and put giving circle in and something might likely pop up uh, in that community. In terms of giving, um, giving circles online, there have been a number of experiments about that. But in general, what I think we find is that people like the eyeball to eyeball contact and the opportunity to network, to build relationships, to learn together, to go on site visits together, to really have serious conversations about the grant making aspect of it. And also, and we want to keep this in mind, too, is to work closely with the recipient organizations or the applicant organizations. Um, And the research has found that when 
uh, in this case, well, when donors do it, they are they learn more about their community. They're more knowledgeable about the community. They tend to give more strategically and they give more. Mm-hmm. So we, we're, we're rather fond of giving circles here. I love that. Well, I would love to give listeners some advice around how to create an actual giving plan. I don't think we often talk about talk about financial planning a lot on this show from trying to get out of debt, investing, saving, budgeting, but uh, giving sometimes, although we want it to be a priority, it it really, we feel like we have to address so much more first. And so really being conscious and proactive about a giving plan is important if this is important to you. And one of the, you have some wonderful bullets here and I want to touch on as many as we can, but one of the important things is obviously knowing what your value system is, right? That helps to determine where to even begin. You also mentioned, and I think this is important, is that, um, you know, already figure out how you might already be giving. We sometimes don't realize sometimes when we're giving because like, you know, especially with Facebook and all these social platforms that are requesting money from us, like for birthdays, please donate to racists in, you know, Texas for on my behalf. We do these things kind of as one-offs, but it can add up. And maybe we've already been doing the, the things that we want to be doing with our money and, you know, don't need to do a lot more from there. Absolutely. Uh, One person told me a number of years ago that people tend to think more and longer about planning their vacations than they do about their philanthropy. And we we think vacations are wonderful and we're all in favor of them. Um, But we also think that philanthropy is a very important part of our civic engagement and the social fabric of this country. And if it weren't for philanthropy, so many things that we use on a regular basis wouldn't exist. So it's important to step back and writing things down is a valuable part of the process. So that when you write down the causes that you're passionate about, and then you actually, if people still have checkbooks or they look at their bank statements and actually make a list of the causes that they've supported, then they can also think about, well, who asked them to do that? And what is the connection for that? And how closely do those causes that our friends ask us to support align with our own values? And if they don't align with our values, I'm a big advocate for the 80-20 rule, which basically says 80% of the resources that I have for philanthropy will go to the, the top three causes I care about most passionately. And that allows me the flexibility to support your Facebook fundraiser or somebody else's Facebook fundraiser because I have strategically allocated 20% to do that. And then when that 20% is gone, I can say no with a little bit more confidence because I can say, Farnoosh, you know, this is a great cause and I'm so glad you're passionate about it. I've allocated that discretionary amount. And right now I'm concentrated on supporting education, the arts and the environment. And I really hope that you respect that. So it gives us the opportunity to say no because we have a reason for saying no. That's important. I think that it's really easy to feel the pressure to contribute to causes. We want to contribute. If we could, we contribute to so many causes, all of them. Um, it's, but, and it can feel very like a personal rejection if you're 
relative or colleague is asking you to contribute to something that they're passionate about or they feel is important and you, you know, can't or don't want to, or you, you, as you said, you've already allocated your budget to charity. I think that that's a really great way to keep the peace is to rather than say, like, there's so many things you could say that could go wrong. But if you say, I'm so sorry, I love what you're trying to accomplish. I really believe in the mission. I've already contributed to my charities this year. But maybe what could be a great follow-up to that too is like, how else can I help? And one of the things you mentioned is like, you don't have to just always give money. You know, there, there's your time, there are your resources that can be, can very much go a long way and help causes move forward. It used to be that we would talk about the three T's, time, talent, and treasure. They were in a way, the Bible of the work that it happens in philanthropy. We've now added two more T's recently. One is testimony. So in other words, being an advocate for causes, not only that you care about, to be an advocate for your friends' causes as well. And the last one is ties, T-I-E-S. And think about network. How can you leverage? And this is why the Facebook fundraisers are so strong, so powerful. In the first year of the Facebook uh, birthday fundraisers, they raised more than $300 million for charity. So we're talking about a lot of dollars here. And the way it works is through the ties. So the bigger your network, the more likely you might be to help support uh, the causes that you care about and maybe find people within your network to support the causes that your friends care about. It's amazing sometimes to hear how much, for example, political candidates raise within 24 hours. I've heard, you know, I, I hear like so and so raised, you know, $3 million or a million dollars in 24 hours. And I think that's, I guess that's thanks to like text. <laughs> well, I, that mean, is, I mean, that is definitely the hot new thing. Right. And political fundraising and philanthropic fundraising and political giving and philanthropic giving are definitely two different animals. And in some ways, I think the nonprofit world could learn a little bit from the political. But what I see, because I'm barraged by this stuff, um, what I see is that sense of urgency perhaps causes, I don't know this for sure, but I think it causes burnout, particularly among women. And I know that when I'm barraged by all of these political issues and it's this hard hitting it's do or die moment. The world is going to collapse. Well, that may be true, but it doesn't make me feel, it makes me feel very anxious. And I, I tend not to support those kinds of things because they're not really appealing to me as a woman. They're appealing to every donor and they don't recognize that for some of us women, that the way that message comes across is it's not a positive message. Um, I don't see that happening quite as much in the nonprofit sector Um, So I wouldn't want the nonprofit sector to emulate that. But I do think that some of these more creative mechanisms like the challenges and the texting that nonprofits in today's world have to make it easier uh, for the donor to be able to give to them. Let's transition a little bit to your personal finances. Before we started recording, you confessed that your financial if you had a like a, a book that was dedicated to your financial life, it would be called Boring. Um, <laughs> um, and so, well, let's go there. I mean, I don't think anyone's personal financial life is necessarily boring, but describe a little bit of like kind of your financial upbringing and what makes it so maybe, you know, vanilla or run of the mill for you. Uh, yeah. Farnoosh, 
uh, I was the product of parents who were 40 and 41 when I was born. So as a young person, my parents were already sort of at the the zenith or a little bit past the zenith of their careers. I mean, my mom was a stay-at-home mom for the most part, and my dad uh, was a pediatrician, not the highest paid field in the medical community. Money was never a driving force for them, but there was always enough. We didn't have conversations about money. And so I didn't really understand the role that it played until I graduated from college. And I graduated from college at the age of 20 and in 1974. And what's so interesting about that year is it's the year that the Equal Credit Authorization Act occurred, giving married women, I wasn't married at the time, but giving married women the opportunity to get a credit card on their own financial worth as against having to ask their husbands for permission. So in my adult lifetime, I have seen a revolution of change related to women and money. And I'm really glad that young women today have these conversations, understand how finances work, can tell the difference between stocks and bonds, mutual funds, and are pushed to invest in 401ks because it's much more important to start saving early and compound that interest. It's going to make for a a much more enjoyable retirement with lots of travel and vacations in it. But I didn't have, I didn't have that education as a person. And I've kind of had to learn on the go. Um, I happen to be married to a fiscal conservative. And so the idea was just simply not to spend. Um, And, you know, it worked for us. But that was my financial education. Well, this is a question that comes from our podcast sponsor, Chase. We're asking our guests this month, what is one thing that you do, Andrea, that for you is financial security? I think that having that financial plan is really important because, and I had to push and push and push in my household to have us create one because it was going to give me peace of mind. I'm getting close to retirement. My husband is older than I am. And I wanted to know how this money that we've worked so hard for was going to be able to take care of us in our retirement. And so we we finally were able to sit down with a financial planner. I pushed and pushed and pushed, and we ended up with a, a woman financial planner because that was going to make me more comfortable. And I truly, I, I have so much less angst about all of this now because I know that it's written down. We've done the analysis and we understand how it's all going to play out. Now, that said, that's barring any major health catastrophes, because even though we plan for those and we have long-term care insurance, which is really important, you know, bad things happen. And so that's one of the reasons my husband uh, is continuing to work well past retirement, because he has that, you know, that anxiety hasn't gone away for him yet. Yeah. And I mean, there's a whole debate and it's a whole other episode about what does it mean to retire? And, you know, this uh, construct of retirement traditionally, it just doesn't really apply today. And I think that if you're still holding on to these retirement ideals of like retiring at 60, I think that it's better to have an open mind about what, what your retirement will look like. I mean, certainly it's important to save no matter what, but it's, it's another thing to, to kind of 
be insistent upon this, you know, traditional idea of retiring at 60, 65 on the beach with a pin, you know, a pina colada. I think uh-huh. that we're living longer. We're, uh, we're much healthier than previous generations. We can also work in a fashion that isn't as hopefully as uh, rigorous. Like we don't have to, you know, we can work remotely. We can work from home a lot of days if we need to. So I think that's contributing to a longer lasting work life. Um, and hopefully for those who haven't shored up enough cash for retirement, it's now an opportunity to continue working and like, you know, stay active. Cause also we want that connection. We create, we crave keeping our brains working. I agree a hundred percent. And the other thing that I would add to the conversation is that it's really important that we take care of our health, not starting at 60, not starting at 50, but all throughout so that we can protect ourselves against some of the catastrophic things that happen by staying healthy and by exercising more um, and eating well. And that's, that's an important part of financial health these days. I mean, a far more important part, I think, um, than we've given it credit for. Well, I have to say, Andrea, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I've learned a lot. I've been really encouraged. And and this is happy news. I think it's great to know that women uh, are so philanthropic, that we are so dedicated to giving. I think that it, for me, again, you know, just reinforces the need to get out there more and, and talk about the importance of making more as a woman so that we can have more... Um, ability to use our money in these ways if we if we choose to and help people and help make the world a better place. And thank you for helping make the world a better place, Andrea. You truly are. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being a strong advocate for philanthropy. Thanks so much to Andrea for joining us. You can learn more about the Women's Philanthropy Institute on their website, which is on our website. It's a very long link. So I'm just going to encourage you to go to somoneypodcast.com, click on this episode link, and we've got all the links for you there. If you'd like to follow the Institute on Twitter, here it is. It's at IU Philanthropy which is pretty easy and simple to remember, hopefully. All this information, as well as the audio and the transcript is available at somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, if you've got a question for me for our Friday episodes, do not hesitate. Click on Ask Farnoosh. Leave me either a voicemail or send in or type in your question. And if you'd like to co-host because you, you like the show, you want to contribute, you've got some insights, you'd like to help listeners, hit me up. Let me know there also that you'd like to sign up for a time to record with me. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.